his influence on me was just a general love of pop music and the idea of of making music that people people relate to and that comes from him as a person from him as in his personality on the television show and listening to the records and listening to his voice and it's it's almost not even a specific thing as much as it's it just is who i am in that way it's very strange that i i couldn't remove him and his influence from my life You're listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Today, my guest is Rob Pruce, who has a remarkable career, which started with the music of the Partridge family. Rob, who grew up in Canada, was five years old when he became obsessed with the music. At the time, he was learning classical piano and taught himself how to play the entertainer. His love of music and the piano led him to joining his first band when he was just 10 years old. He later enjoyed successful years playing with The Spoons and Honeymoon Suite. Rob switched from rock bands to playing keyboards on hit musicals, including Cats, Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon, and working with Benny and Bjorn of ABBA, joining Mamma Mia for 15 years, where he was musical director of the New York cast. In our conversation, Rob talks about the influence David Cassidy had on his career. His experience of teaching actor Rami Malek how to play the piano for his role as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody, and why the Partridge family music is an important part of American culture. Rob shared his story and explained David's impact in my book Cherish. He revisits why David's death has been so difficult to understand and examines why losing those who have been such a strong influence in our lives leave us feeling sad. Well, I am fascinated to, to discover so much about you today. All right. Well, let's do it. <laughs> I want to thank you for being part of uh, Cherish. I loved your story. And thank you. I love the whole book. Oh, yeah. And yep. so many people have said to me, isn't it wonderful that a man has kept his scrapbooks? <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, I found in your story, it was quite telling where you said, never let your childhood leave you. Mm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that and where your early influences came from? It's easy for us to forget how important the, the formative years are for you as a, as a person and the, the, the music that you take in, the television that you watch, the books that you read, the stories you're told by your family. I feel like all of these things uh, sort of add up to make us who we are. But we hit a certain point, maybe in adolescence, where we start to, to then discover that we, we are an individual and we do have our own opinions and things. And, it, and it's almost like you're starting over. I feel like maybe as a teenager, we can often suddenly have a newfound independence where the things that you liked when you were young, maybe maybe you've forgotten them or you've you've moved on so much because you've just everything is brand new all the time as you're growing up, you know, um, but what happened with me, because I can only talk about my own experience, but I feel like because I grew up to be a musician that early stuff like i said it never left me and and i think everything was brand new at every step of my life i was learning new music and i was listening to new music you know when the new wave era came in in the late 70s and i fell in love with with gary newman and the cars and all of the electronic music and elvis costello and all that kind of music 
But before that, I just loved whatever was on the top 40 radio. So I loved Elton John and I loved Queen and the Bay City Rollers and, of course, the Partridge family. But at every step along the way, it was always something new. And I and I sort of left the old stuff behind, but it, but I, it never really left. I just kept moving forward. But at some point, maybe as a result of getting older, I think at some point in my late 20s or in my 30s, I started looking backwards and thinking about that music from my early years again and and realizing how well I still know it, especially like the, the Partridge Family, the first album in particular, because I would listen to it older, like grown up, and it would occur to me like how well I know this music and like every beat and every keyboard part and every vocal. And when I'm listening to it, it's almost like looking at a, like an old family photograph or something. And it sort of hit me in that way. And I thought, well, music does something to you. I mean, it does something to all of us. And it's easy to forget. I guess that's sort of the thing that I realized. It, it can be easy to forget. But if you tune into it and you think about it in that way, you realize it never, it's never left. It's always been there. And I mean, I think this is a, a challenge for human beings in general, that it's you, we sort of accumulate things through our lives. And part of the challenge is to not, you know, people say, well, don't be sentimental and don't, you know, don't always look backwards. But there's something different, I think. I haven't quite developed my theory about it, but I think when you look backwards in some ways to things that you love, it puts you right in that moment. And it's not like you missed that moment, but you're there again. And you realize that that moment is still this moment, and you're still that person, even though you've added many years to your life. You can't really forget it anyways. Like, I think that part of the challenge of growing up is is to carry those things with you but but carry them in a way that's positive for you like you know a lot of people have have memories and things that they want to try to forget and there's there's things that you just learn how to process and you learn to keep in your in your brain and in your in your spirit somehow but the positive things are also there like i think you know a lot of people spend time looking back at their childhood to say what went wrong like who's the person that hurt me and how did i get this way and do this but i think it's just as important to think of the things that made you who you are in the most positive ways that will counterbalance it in some ways you know so you first discovered the partridge family music at that key age first seven years of everyone's lives and so important when did you first become aware of their music probably on the television show i mean i mean looking at that period where like i i read what i wrote for the book and like the first episode was the day after i turned five years old which is crazy <laughs> it's so funny to me so knowing that they had released the single earlier that in that year in canada i think I, I think i love you was already they probably did it as like a promotional thing to to get everybody ready for this show that's coming i can't remember now if it was you know exactly the same time but that was my first awareness of the show and and the music and definitely that album was one of the first things I ever got, like as far as being five years old and wanting to have records. The only other record I think I had before that was Sesame Street because Sesame Street had started a year earlier. And again, it's another thing in my life where it's so vivid. Like when I think about the fact that I was five, four years old, five years old, I had just turned four when Sesame Street started. But I remember my mom saying, okay, Robbie, there's a new show on television that's made just for kids. And I remember my mom taking me into the family room in the basement and putting me, sitting me in front of the TV and like, you know, watching this thing. And it's the weirdest thing, like why that stuck with me. But that was the first, one of the first really early memories in that way. So I've been a, a big fan of pop culture since those early years. So, so it's progressively, you know, it went from Sesame Street 
And then there was the banana splits as well. The banana splits were in there, which sort of got me ready for the Partridge family to get into the human beings, you know? So, so then, then it just became a matter of, of watching the show every Friday, whenever it was on and having that first album. And then I had the second album and the third album. And then I had a cousin who came to Canada to visit our family from Germany when I was five and she was like 15, I think. And she started buying all the teen magazines because she was already obsessed with Partridge Family as well. She was the right age too. Um, so she was buying Tiger Beat magazine and Teen Beat magazine and all, whatever had David on the cover, you know? So that was my first exposure to that. So then that was the thing that I started becoming a collector of then as well, even at that early age. So when you talk about the first album, are you talking about the melody and the structure of the music and David's voice when it eventually started to come through more and more? Did yeah. that become more important to you? I think it was really just everything together. I mean, certainly he had such a magical sound to his voice in the first place, right? I, there's something about just the sound of those records, like like the, the arrangements of all the keyboards and all the instruments playing. And I always found it so interesting years later to learn that it was those LA session musicians, what they called, who they called the Wrecking Crew, who played on so many famous pop records the, for the Beach Boys and all the Phil Spector records and everything. And they were the same ones making these albums. And you think, well, that's why it sounds so good and why it sounds so current, because it was the modern music makers of the time. And I think that's the overall sound is really what struck me. I do remember, though, on the first album, I recognized David's voice from the television show. And there was always that one or two songs that it wasn't him. It was that song to be lovers. And the right. And it was the weirdest thing, because even at that early age, I remember listening to it thinking it doesn't sound like David. But it's so cool. Anyways, like I, I don't even remember, you know, what I ever, what I thought of it. I don't know that I thought, well, maybe it's Danny singing or, or maybe it's Ruben Kincaid singing. It's probably not. But, you know, it's interesting to think that they just went ahead and put that song on the record anyways in that way because it's so obviously not David singing. Is there any of his work that influenced you or you consider his best work? The way he delivered songs inspire you that you think back and go well maybe in the back of my mind there was that early influence from 71 72 it's oh it's absolutely an influence i mean i mean it's david and the partridge family for sure but it's really he personally or he specifically i think was my first uh entry into the world of of, a, of like knowing what a pop idol is i mean if i look back and think how obsessed was I with him? You know, what was it in him that was so inspirational? It was like that ideal of of a guy who's not that old, but he's so cool. And I would, I had a, I, and I'm always looking for this picture. I had a giant poster on my bedroom wall. It was a black and white photograph of David. And every once in a while, I Google David Cassidy posters, and I've still never seen the actual image from the poster. And I'll know it as soon as I see it. But I haven't. it's very strange that there's so many pictures of him. But the one that I had specifically, I've never seen. It's very weird. It's a black and white photo. And it was, it was sort of a casual photo. And I got it at the local department store. They probably had a bunch of different ones, but I think I just wanted the biggest one of David. Um, but I think his, his influence on me was just the general love of pop music and the idea of of making music that people people relate to and that comes from him as a person from him as in his personality on the television show and listening to the records and listening to his voice and it's it's almost not even a specific thing as much as it's it just is who i am in that way 
it's very strange that I, I couldn't remove him and his influence from my life because it was because it was coming up at the same time. Like I said, as I was learning piano, those things were happening cons at the exact same time. And my my love of the Partridge family was all encompassing. <laughs> you know, um, I remember when he did his first solo album, when Cherish was released. That was a different thing for me as well because I it was the first time I had to think wow he's not a he now he's not a member of the Partridge family it's David on his own and that record still is magical to me in many ways too and I think that's probably just because I knew it was David as not Keith Partridge it was David as David and so I had to listen to the music and and think about it in a different way I still that's I love that record almost as much as I love those first couple of Partridge Family albums as well, for that reason. And actually, there's there's some of the songs, some of the early songs I've thought of doing versions of, and I still may do, like either even like like solo piano versions. Like sometimes when I sit at the piano, and I've I've got a sheet music book of of those first albums, and sometimes I'll just look for the lyrics and the chords, and I'll just play through them and try to learn the songs. And it makes me so happy to just like play them on the piano. It's very satisfying to just play those melodies, you know. Um, like I've heard over the years, David's do, done live versions of them, and and like anytime I've heard the the you know as he got older, it was always amazing to hear him do those songs. And it's just such a, a beautiful thing to know that those songs were you know he he kept those songs in his in his catalog of music because that's what people wanted to hear yeah. as well. It's and great. also that's reaching a new generation. For sure. As probably your, your music does as well. I mean, music just makes the rounds and I'm sure people will be discovering the spoons and... Yeah, it happened. I see it with friends on Facebook. Like like I'm friends with, with lots of people who loved our music and a lot of fans have connected with me. And I love that connection because I, f I feel like the music makers and the listeners need each other. Like as much as I love to be creative, I love just listening to music. And, and I love the fact that people have reached out to me because my music, the music that we've made meant something to them as well. And many people have written to me and said, oh, my kids, I played my kids your music and they love it and they think it's super cool. And it's, it's true. This, it's a similar kind of thing. It's, it's like generations discovering the Beatles. I mean, Beatles and Elvis, you know, as time goes on, my wife and I, we actually do a class with public schools here in New York. Um, with a, we have a Beatles class and it's amazing to introduce kids to the Beatles because I feel like as a fundamental place to start in learning about the history of pop music, it's good to go, to go back to the Beatles because there's so much to offer. And it's so amazing to watch these kids who are like in fifth, sixth grade, fourth grade even, um, come to us and, and tell us how much they love discovering songs by the Beatles. It's amazing. Like I think that there's something to be said for all eras of pop music to be rediscovered and and as long as it, as long as children are given the opportunity to listen and to find the patience to listen because unfortunately for for us and for the attention span of the world it's all getting whittled down to like 15 seconds you know like everybody talks about going on to TikTok and things where you've got like maybe a minute to to like do something interesting and you can't get much of anything in a minute but you know if if that one minute makes you want to learn more and you're able to do it then that's fantastic yeah. because there's so much waiting to be discovered i feel like pop music is like classical music from 2 or 300 years ago i mean beethoven never goes out of style right and every generation is rediscovering music in that way and i think it's going to continue to happen now with pop music and it's it's a slow go but it will it'll always be there because the music speaks for itself you know no no 
short soundbite and no quick little 15 second thing is going to make up for the fact that you can listen to a piece of music and it could change your life. You need to so. give them a masterclass in the Partridge family. I know. <laughs> That's right. Seriously. It's true. My, my stepson and I, we watch it often and he, he loves it. Like I'll put it on because I've got a couple of the episodes, a couple of the seasons on uh, iTunes. So I watch it on Apple TV and he'll sit and watch with me. And he, lo- of course he loves Danny Partridge. But I think it's just, it's such, there's some, something so timeless about the show, you know? When you hear that <clears throat> sound, you are taken back, no matter what your favorite music is as you grow older, whatever yep. influenced you in those early days. Yeah. That's there. You know, totally. There's, there's so totally. Much about it. And it's it's a good meditation for people to do, I think, as well. Like I, I mean, you know, people talk about meditation and ways to like to still your mind, and I feel like there's a there's got to be a term for it. It's not it's almost like past life regression, but you're still in the same life. But there's a way to go backwards and and go backwards into your life, and and maybe don't be so specific with the memories. But I really feel like music, just like you said, it puts you right there. You, if you close your eyes and listen to it, you can feel the room, and you can, you can, you can, you can create another place that you were, and it's almost as if you're right there. And there's got to be something healing in that. Like, like I really feel like there's truth to that in the way that they've been doing studies with Alzheimer's patients, you know, and and saying that music is a really powerful way for people to unlock memories and unlock a lot of like like connections into their world. And there's got to be truth to that because. Music definitely does that. And and I get so much comfort from taking music, from just picking a year. Like for me, I go consecutively. Like I, I can go year by year by year. And I think of songs from every era. Like it always makes me very happy to look at charts, pop charts. And I look at like the top 100 hits from 1975 or the top 100 hits from 1982. Once I get into the 80s, it's not quite as much because then I was making the music. And it still had an important influence on me as a teenager. But I think I get more joy from the early years, from from let's say the music in my life between the ages of like four, five, and thirteen. And I think that's probably true of almost everybody, even if they don't believe it. I think it's probably true. So around that time, you started to play the piano yourself, didn't you? Yep. When I was five. Yep. So the the following summer, I was nearly I was turning six. And we had got a piano in the house and my dad played a little tiny bit. So my grandfather had bought the piano really for my dad, but it was more like a family instrument. And I started sort of plunking out some melodies and things. And so I started lessons that year. So my really my my musical lessons, my musical awareness began to increase because as I was listening to the radio and watching the Partridge family, I was starting to learn about the piano itself. And, and I wasn't yet playing pop music. That was a few more years away. But definitely those things were, were coinciding because my other love of, of music at that time was just listening to the radio, whatever Top 40 was. And anytime I heard a piano, my brain was like, paying more attention because I recognized, oh, that's something that I'm you know starting to get familiar with. So a few more years later, like when I was about nine or 10 years old, was when, when all of a sudden the light, light bulb went off in my head and I thought, wow, I'm learning how to read music with my piano teacher. I'm learning classical music. Now, if I only got a music book that showed me Elton John songs, I could play the Elton John music as well. It would be like the same thing. So that was my, my next step along the way was to then get music, sheet music for pop songs and, yeah. and start teaching, learning how to do that. Wasn't so. one of those songs Marvin Hamlish, the entertainer? Of course, the entertainer. Yep. 
That was what that was one of the keys too, because of the fact that it was on the radio because of that movie The Sting. And Marvin Hamlish's arrangement of the entertainer was on the radio. So certainly that was a song that made me even more become aware because it was an instrumental as well. And to hear a nice piano solo. So I made my mom order me the sheet music and I learned how to play it at home and then I took it to my teacher. And she said, Robbie, that's far too advanced for you. We need to get you a simplified piano arrangement of it. And then, so my mom ordered me a simpler piano version of the sheet music. And right away I played it and I thought, this doesn't sound anything like it. And so I kind of, I was like, all right, I was disappointed. And I thought, well, I worked really hard to try to learn this actual thing. And I'm sure I wasn't very good at it, but like I tried really hard because I wanted it to sound like how I imagined the record to sound. But then when I played the simplified version, I knew that it wasn't the same. So, so then I thought, well, I think I'm going to just let my piano teacher teach me what she needs to teach me and I'm going to come home and I'll do my pop music on my own. So that kind of became my world sort of split, but they kind of were on similar paths, you know, in the same direction. But I would go home, I would go to my teacher and play my, my scales and do my theory homework and my classical pieces. But then I'd go home and I would read my Elton John and my Queen music books. <laughs> so they kind of went together. By this time I was about nine or ten. Yeah, I was getting old. I had to get serious. <laughs> Did, was your teacher always encouraging for you? Because she sounds as though, from what you're saying just then, it was like, whoa, you know, you, you're trying to run before you can walk. A little bit. She was definitely encouraging, but I think what I'm so grateful for was that her encouragement was to get the basics. I think she wasn't really interested in teaching me what was on the radio because that's, you know, there's sort of an easier, it's sort of an easier route to just make me happy. And, and I know what that feels like because today my wife and I, we teach a lot of students. We do, we do voice lessons with, with kids who are like between the ages of maybe 7 and 13 or 14. And often they just want to learn what's on the radio. They want to learn the newest pop songs. And it's okay for us because what we're trying to encourage with kids now is just the enthusiasm and the inspiration to want to sing and to want to make music. But I think, well, for me... Half a century ago, when I was five years old, six years old, seven years old, I still had a teacher. She was an older lady at that time. She wanted to teach me the basics. And she, we were going through the, what was called in, in Canada the Royal Conservatory of Music. And it was a graded program where you went and you took an, an exam every year and you played your piano pieces for the adjudicator and you got a grade. And then you graduated to the next level. So she was teaching me this. And I'm definitely grateful that that's what she did for me. And I'm also grateful that... I found the nerve in myself to go, great, I'll just help myself to my pop, to my pop music. And I'll, but I knew that it was okay as long as I kept, kept up my end of the bargain with her as a student and tried to do my best with her as well. So I didn't mind her, I didn't mind her being strict with me because I didn't really, I didn't really bother me. Like I didn't, I wasn't afraid of it and I didn't feel the pressure to become really good because I, I don't think I was ever really that good at it in some ways anyways, I did my best. But to me, the, the idea of music was larger than just learning from a teacher. I felt like already I sort of had this idea that music had a larger mission in my life and in the world that it, it, you want to be, you want to do things correctly, but if you don't, it's still okay. Was music always going to be your path in life? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it is. It sure turned out that way. But I never, I guess, you know, the funny thing is that I never thought about it. Like, it never occurred to me uh, until it was too late, I guess, um, that I'm a musician and that's how I make my living. And and I guess part of the part of the things that I feel fortunate about is the fact that I love making music and I love all kinds of music and I love 
working with kids and I love working with adult adult people, you know, my colleagues and I and I love any any element of it and I feel like I just I'm enthusiastic enough to take any opportunity to do things. And I certain and I I certainly get myself into situations that I'm I feel like I'm uh not prepared for, but then I'm not not too scared to to just go for it anyways and even if I'm like really nervous about it, then I think, well, I, I it's still just music. So, no matter no matter how prepared I feel or how far into foreign territory I'm getting, I'm going to just be willing to go and learn and learn as I go. And that's kind of what I've tried to do my whole life long, I guess. You've worked with some of the most amazing producers, musicians, mm -hmm. actors, and we'll come on to that. How supportive were your parents of your mission to, to go into music? They were very supportive. At such an early age, it became my focus. I mean, I, w I was in my first band when I was 10 years old. And my parents were renting me keyboards by the time I was 11. And we would go to the music shop and my dad, because my dad is a musician as well. So he plays guitar already. And he sang in, 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 in the, like the late 50s. When he was in his early 20s, he was wanting to be a rock. He was, he was a singer. He grew up in Germany. And we have some recordings of he played in bands and like he was sort of like Elvis was his inspiration, you know. So so we already had that musical background. My mom is not so musical, but she's she was the fan of music. So she's the one that kept the radio playing in the kitchen all the time, you know. So I feel like between the two of them, what I was doing was something that, that was already something that they loved in, in our world anyways. And so the fact that it it became sort of a, a real passion for me, I think probably just made them happy. And they didn't get a chance to really question it because by the time I was 15, I was in my band making records and touring and stuff. At, at a certain point in my mid-teens, I think I started thinking, oh, I wish I, could, I would love to go to school for music. And, and like with my band, we were touring around and we played a lot of colleges and universities. And every time we got to the, to the campuses, I always wanted to go to the, to the school library and look at the music section. Because as much as I loved playing in a pop band now and having records and all that kind of stuff, there was a part of me that still lo loved learning about music. And I guess maybe that's another fortunate thing from having a teacher and then kind of teaching myself as well that I've, I've stayed like a, a teacher to myself my whole life. And I think at one point my mom probably thought, well, maybe he could go to school for music. But then at the same time, she realized I was getting an, an education in life because I was doing the things that you can't learn in school anyways, you know, playing and touring and recording and all those kind of things. There's no school program that's going to make that work for you. It, that's, that's all pretty, uh, pretty much a, a luck of the draw sort of thing anyways. Yeah. So we were able to, to make that happen for us while it was, in, while it was available. But then my whole life long, I continued to take lessons and, and do those kind of things. Even to this day, I, I'm always learning and like reading online and like wanting to study with people and do those kind of things. Even, even as I'm teaching people as well, you know, it's like the teacher gets taught by the student. So so we're at, at the age of 10, you formed a band with school friends? My, my best friend who lived across the street had formed a band, and he asked me to join his band. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and so we were a little bit limited in where we could play because I didn't have any keyboards, and, and our drummer had a nice big upright piano in his basement. So we would go and rehearse in the basement, and that was as far as we could go. And then we, we played once in his public school library because there was a piano in the library. And we played there and we used to play like songs by the monkeys and we played 
Um, well, we played Last Train to Clarksville, which is the song I remember the most, and Taking Care of Business by Bachman Turner Overdrive. And so, my because there was a lot of good piano on that, so that was my first time trying to like play rock and roll piano. Yeah, I went out that. That was my early early band experiences, and and so my parents at that point realized that I was interested in this and that. It was something that could develop. So that was when my dad started renting me an electric piano so that I could then be a little bit more transportable, like to go and play gigs and stuff. And didn't you join the Spoons after seeing a newspaper advertisement for a keyboard player? Yes. So they were a band. They were in my hometown. They were together for just about a year before I joined. So I sort of knew of the band because a friend of mine, his older brother was was one of their managers sort of helping them to get their career up and coming and so i i knew who they were and i was kind of obsessed with them even though i'd never really i'd seen them play one time they opened do you remember a band martha and the muffins they had a big song called echo beach in 1980 was was a big hit in actually they got their big breakthrough in the uk um but they were a canadian band and i saw the spoons open for martha and the muffins and I saw them one more time, and then their keyboard player left the band, and they had an ad in the in the local paper, and I called up, and I was only 15. At the, I just turned 15 at the time, so I went and auditioned. They were a little bit older than me, not a lot, but yep, that was my, my, my opportunity to join the band. Presumably, they were taking bookings at universities on campus, but also perhaps in clubs and bars. And you are at 15, not even allowed into a bar. <laughs> That's right. I had to have, there was a special, the music, because I had to join the musicians union. And then there's a, a thing in Canada, it was called the Liquor Control Board, the Liquor License Control Board, which I think probably regulated the serving of alcohol in, in bars and clubs. And they had, the musicians union had a form that I had to get signed by my mom that said, okay, I know my son is underage and I know he's going to be playing at a bar where they serve alcohol. And it's okay as long as he's either on stage or backstage. And I had this, I probably still have the letter in a box somewhere, but I had to keep this letter with me in case anybody asked for it. And I think maybe one time somebody asked for it, but I just had to get, it was like a regulation just so the bar wouldn't get in trouble knowing that there was an underage person in the bar. So that was, that was 1980, the end of 1980 when I joined the band. And my very first performance with the band was the night that John Lennon was killed, December 8th. So it was, it's weird for me because, you know, that's an anniversary which comes by every year that people think of December 8th as this, of course, it's a very sad occasion. It was, we just passed the 40th anniversary. And for me, it's always been, it's very sad, but it was my first gig with the Spoons. So for my, my personal career, I always have this happy, sad feeling for December 8th. That's because that was that my first date with them. Did you write the first song with the spoons or before then? Before then, when I was 11. <laughs> Not a very good song. Yeah, well, with my band, um, we decided we should probably try to write an original song because we were we were just playing whatever was on the radio. So we played, we played Fleetwood Mac songs, we played Bohemian Rhapsody, we played Kiss songs, Mamma Mia, we played from ABBA, which came back to me later. <laughs> um, but we decided to try to write an original. So so my friend wrote some lyrics, and then we tried to, to write some music. And it was okay. We were, so we, we really just wrote a couple of songs. And I think it was harder than we thought. So we didn't really do many more. We just kind of stuck to other songs that we loved from other people. And then it wasn't really until I joined The Spoons that I... That was my first band that was all completely original. So it was a new thing for me to like have to come up with my own ideas for helping to compose the song and help with the arrangements and stuff. Do you are you the sort of person who has to continually be creative? No. 
but I think I am. <laughs> because I feel like creativity is a thing that exists in us without actually having to do something creative as long as you're keeping your mind engaged with something. Like I feel like I, I play piano. I don't play piano all the time, but when I sit down, I could play for hours and hours and just never stop. And I could come up with ideas for songs and I could like play my synthesizer and try different sounds and have different ideas for things. And then sometimes I'll just let them go. I don't feel like I need to capture everything I do, but I feel like being creative also involves being inspired by creativity, which is why it, which is a good excuse to say, I love watching old movies and I love reading books and I love reading poetry and listening to other people's music because I like enjoying creativity as much as I like being creative. And I think they go hand in hand. I feel like for listeners and for people who are fans of music, it's just as important as being a creator. Like we really need each other. And I, so for me, I feel like I've been really fortunate. Another thing in my life, I, I'm always realizing these fortunate coincidence that I've loved listening to music as much as I've loved making music. And I don't feel like one is more or less important than the other. Although, you know, I, I have people who were, who were fans of my bands who are always like, you have to do a live stream. I want you to play some music online and go on and play piano or do something. And I love doing things like that. But then part of me wants to like do something that's more prepared. So then I end up procrastinating and putting it off. But then I also spend time listening to other people who do things like that. And I think, oh, it's fantastic to just listen to other people. So I feel like creativity is just something that we all have in, in different degrees and in different ways. But it's easy to forget it as well. I think there's there's also too many distractions in the world that are not so creative in terms of like staying tuned, like tuned into the news and staying tuned into like, uh, like trivial pursuits in the world. There's a lot of trivial pursuits that are maybe not so creative, yeah. but if you're reading a book or you're looking at a piece of art or, or watching a movie, like there's definitely, definitely creative acts. So I didn't really answer your question, but I, I am creative. No, you have, you have. That's a thorough explanation. I love, I like that. Then you moved on to Honeymoon Suite. About nine months after I left The Spoons, I, it wasn't a direct segue. Um, I left The Spoons just sort of feeling like I needed a change in my life and I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. I just felt like I needed to get a, away from the band and just sort of reset my, my bearings in a way. Um, and then an opportunity came nine months later to audition for Honeymoon Suite. I kind of thought, wow, that might be actually a really kind of a cool thing because they were already getting fairly well established. They had released two albums and they had a bunch of songs on the Canadian charts and they were getting airplay around the world and stuff. And I thought, well, this might be kind of cool. So I sort of devoted myself to try to, to, to be really well prepared for the audition. So I learned a bunch of their songs and I went to the audition and then I ended up getting to play with the band. And I, my first performance with the band was opening for Journey in Kansas City. So they were they were actually in the midst of an American tour at that point, and their keyboard player left sort of unexpectedly. They had a few weeks off and he left, so they were eager to get back up and running. So I think because I had learned a bunch of their songs, they felt like it was a, a good way for them to just jump back onto where they were. So we we rejoined this tour with Journey, and so I will kind of it was sort of like getting thrown onto a moving train in that way. But it was really really amazing. It was a great learning experience. And yeah, I was with them for nearly three years. So when you're watching people like Journey, do you kind of stand mesmerized by them? Do you think, yeah. well, I wish we could produce music like that, or I love that production? For sure. I mean, and it's funny because because we were also at the position of 
already making music that people would look at us and feel the same thing, you know? But I think it just shows you that everybody feels that way. Like when I was with the Spoons, we we did some shows with or- orchestral maneuvers in the dark in their early days with OMD. And they had come through Canada and they, they were still pretty much an alternative underground kind of a band. But in Toronto, they had a lot of success on the alternative radio stations. So we did a couple of shows with them and we would watch them and just think, man, they are so cool. Like, and, and I think what happens is it just becomes like an inspiration for you to try to try to find new ways to, to make your music better as well. So the same thing with Honeymoon Suite. We would, we would do shows with Journey. We did shows with um, Jefferson Starship and Ario Speedwagon. And actually, we did a big tour in the UK with Status Quo and we opened for them. Yeah, which was amazing. We didn't really know them that well, but but our our record company was like, status quo are superstars in Europe. You guys, it's going to be unbelievable. And it was like the most fun tour. We played all through the UK, and actually we did a lot of shows in Germany as well, like 21 cities in Germany. Um, They had just released, it was 1988, and they had released... I don't know if you remember the song was called In the Army Now. Was their big Yeah, that was I think they were still riding on the success of In the Army Now. So, for us it was fantastic. We played two nights at Wembley Arena. So, it wasn't the stadium, it was the arena. But, you know, all through the UK, we it was a fantastic tour. But I I do feel like anytime you get to see another artist performing, you just watch and learn. And I I do that, I mean, my whole life long. It's it's a thing just watching bands and listening to music. And you hear things that make you go, wow, how did they do that? And it always informs your creations and, and the ways you want to continue to try to do new things. Switching track a little bit here, can you talk us through how your career path led you to the theatre and working on the shows of the calibre of Miss Saigon? It sounds like an easy path because it was kind of... Well, It, it looking back at it now, it wasn't really... But it it was in the way that there there weren't a lot of steps to take, um, because I didn't really know anything about it at all. So I was just it was the end of a tour that we had done with Honeymoon Suite, and I had seen an ad in the newspaper in Toronto that Phantom of the Opera was going to be coming. Uh, like another year later, it was going to be coming, and um, it's like a light bulb went off in my head, and I thought, wow, I bet they use musicians in these musicals. Like, it had never occurred to me before that it would be something for a musician to do, because I was used to being in bands and recording and doing all those things, and all of a sudden, the realization that there's there's a whole other world of music that's not classical music. You're not a classical musician on the stage. You're actually under the stage, and you're making the music for a musical. And I thought, wow, that sounds like it might be something kind of cool. So I sort of started making some phone calls, like random phone calls out of the blue to find, to sort of learn about these things. Because, I mean, this was in the late 80s. There was no no internet. There was no way to actually directly get this kind of information. So I had to do a little bit of research. And I had seen some magazine articles on musicians playing on Broadway and stuff like that. And I just sort of started trying to make these steps and and learn things. And I found my way to a guy who was going to be programming keyboards for the musical Cats. Cats was going to be coming to Toronto. It was the tour of of Cats. And I got in touch with this guy and I said, well, I'm really interested in learning how to to play in a musical. And so he put me in touch with a keyboard player who I came and sat with and, and watched him play Cats. And then... A few months went by and I learned that um, one of the keyboard players was going to be leaving and I got to audition to play the show and then I got to play the show. So it was another auditioning process that I did. And then I met a woman who was going to be playing for Phantom of the Opera. 
and I and I asked her if she ever needed a replacement for her if I could could substitute for her and so she said yes it's sort of, so that was sort of the beginning of it that it was sort of it was definitely a word of mouth and and meeting the right person at the right time but it truthfully just kind of snowballed from there because it was a very small scene of music music musicals happening in Toronto at the time so I was able to play Phantom of the Opera and then they were just about to be starting a Canadian tour of the show which I was able to do and I did the Canadian tour of Phantom for two years and then when I got off that tour I had an opportunity to audition to play Miss Saigon and I auditioned and then I got that show so it, it was a lot of like fortunate circumstances but then I still had to audition and prepare and do these things as well so it really wasn't like a smooth thing in that way but definitely it was a it was a smaller world to be getting into in that way um and so then one show kind of led to another so then I did uh, Miss Saigon for a few years in Toronto and then I played Beauty and the Beast and and Tommy the musical Tommy was there as well and I played Blood Brothers David did of course did, did Blood Brothers in fact I there, that was my one chance to almost meet David was when he was in Toronto doing Blood Brothers. And I was playing down the street. I was doing Miss Saigon. And a friend of mine was the music director of Blood Brothers with David. And I was trying to go and meet him. It was, In fact, it was like the last day that he was there. And I, and I had my Partridge Family songbook. And I was trying to go and meet him and get it autographed. And I went to the stage door. And my friend was like, David's really wiped out today. It's his last day and he's, you know, he's resting. So my friend took my music book and got it in and got it autographed. So I have his autograph. And I was a, I was a wall away from actually meeting him. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him. Aww. You know, got that close. But I got my, so my scene behind me, my Partridge family, the first album, the sheet music book, I have his signature on my front. So how from there did Mamma Mia happen? Didn't you come to the UK to watch the show in rehearsals? Yes. So, so I got a call. A few years went by doing all, doing all those shows. Yeah. I was on the road in, in the United States doing Cats. And it was a, what they call a bus and truck tour. So we did, I did the tour for nearly a year. And we played like 50 cities or some crazy amount of cities that I couldn't even name all the places we went to. But sometimes we were in a city for like three nights. Then you get back on the bus. It was like being in a rock and roll band. But, but like even more because you're transporting this whole show. But sort of near the end of the tour, I got a phone call out of the blue from a music director who said, I'm going to be coming to Toronto to do this new musical called Mamma Mia. And I need an assistant to play rock and roll piano. And you were recommended to me. So I, he, I was recommended to him. And it was sort of like a, like a fortunate random phone call. And, and at first I was almost going to say no, because I'm not a music director and I, I've only ever been the, old, the keyboard player in the pit. And I thought, well, I don't really want to be a music director. I'm happy, happier just playing the music. And I met with him and he said, oh, it's fine. It's ABBA. Like, you know, you, you, you don't really have to do a lot of conducting. You just have to play the piano and cue the band. And, and I, I'll teach you how to do it. So I said, okay, great. So that was, so I was willing to take a chance. I said, if you're willing to take a chance, take a chance, take a chance on me, I'll take a chance, take a chance, take a chance on doing the show. And it certainly worked out to be a good thing because then I ended up being involved with the show for 15 years, doing it in Toronto. And in Toronto, we were the second production in the world. And uh, we flew, the music director and I, we flew to London to watch the show and I sat in the pit. And they were just coming up to the one-year anniversary in London. The show was still fairly new in London, even. And genuinely, Betty and Bjorn in Toronto were a little nervous. Like, they kind of thought, well, 
maybe it's just a fluke that it's popular in London, in, in the UK. Maybe it's not going to translate anywhere else. And so it was kind of an exciting time to, to be with them. And, and Bjorn, there were, there were times where I was sort of helping him to remember some of the lyrics, like for, for certain things, he was like, they were still trying to get some of the lyrics right and stuff. But then I ended up being able to do the show in Toronto for a year. And then I went to the West Coast of America on the tour and then came to New York to do the show on Broadway. And then I was here for 14 years with the show. What are your memories of working with them? Benny and Bjorn, they were, they're very humble guys. Like, I mean, really, Bjorn would walk into the rehearsal room to just sit with us. You know, he was he was just so excited by the whole process to know that this was happening. And he would come into the come in with us in the morning and just want to sit by the piano and sit with us. And we were teaching the music to the cast and he just loved listening. He didn't he never had like really criticisms of anything. Once in a while, he'd have things to say about the pronunciation of certain words, but very few. He was just more like amused and he just loved the the whole process i'm sure that went away as you know the 10th and 11th production of mamma mia came along in the world he sort of got over it but we were lucky that we were only the second one in the world so it was still brand new to him and benny benny was the same way benny would come to the band rehearsals and he would sit with us and after rehearsal he would take us next door to the bar and buy us drinks and stuff so he was really excited by the whole process but it's funny to me now because i think this was 20 21 years ago and Benny was like the age I am now. So, so of course, I think if it was me and my age and, and like they were making a musical with my songs from 25 years ago, I would think it was super cool too. But they were just the nicest guys. I tell you, I can remember the night they, they won the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, yes. Wow. When they came on stage, you just knew there was something magical happening. Yeah, I know. When they played Waterloo, of yeah. course. Yeah, and it, it yeah. was... Also, very much the same when you see the Beatles for the first time, or the Rolling Stones, or you see David Cassidy. There is this magic aura about. Yeah, I get that magic aura from from listening to uh, the Partridge Family's. Is it the third album? Is it uh, Sound Magazine? Is that the third? And and it's it's funny that the one song, if I whenever I have I have to pick a favorite Partridge Family song, David Cassidy song, Summer Days is always my favorite. And there's something about that song. The weird thing, you know, I did this podcast recording just before David passed away, and and I did this this radio show where this this guy he asks you to pick songs. He calls it he calls it makes your skin vibrate, and it usually deals with songs from your childhood, things that are very important to you. That when you still listen to them, it makes you it takes you right back to where you were the first time you heard that song. And for me, it was always summer days. And there's something about the opening of that song with the harpsichord and the piano, and the piano glissando into the song. And it's that same magic that you feel when you see ABBA or you hear the Beatles. It's like you said, it's that same, there's something just magical in that. I mean, the songwriter of that, Tony Romeo, is just one of the best. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's all, and you think of all the collaborators on the show. I was listening to a radio station this morning playing Beatles songs and they were playing like obscure Beatles songs and they played a song. I have to, I have to Google this and make sure that I heard it correctly. But I think they said it was a song written by Wes Farrell. And Wes Farrell, was involved with so many of the Partridge Family songs. And I don't know that I know the history of him to know that he even had a song recorded by the Beatles. Like, I think that's amazing. Because when I heard this, I thought, is that true? Is it the same Wes Farrell who was involved with the Partridge Family? That they that he had a Beatles song? Like, it would be astounding to me. The other funny thing I was thinking this morning, I heard a song from the 80s. I don't know if you remember the song called um, Hands to Heaven by Breathe. 
Doesn't that sound just like David Cassidy? I swear to God. It's the funniest timing that I heard the song today and I thought there's an influence that David brings into the world is when he got really comfortable singing in the recording studio and he sang right into the microphone. And it, it was, the, I mean, he had such a distinctive, uh, he had distinctive personalities vocally, right? Where he had such a powerful voice, but when he gave that whispered sound that was so beautiful. And I heard the song from Breathe, which was a huge hit in the 80s. And I thought, oh my God, this could be David Cassidy singing this song. It's unbelievable to me. And I, and I think that that's, it's probably not a direct influence, but it shows you that he was definitely an early, uh, an, an early purveyor of that sound where he really took advantage of the microphone to give a pop sound in the early 70s that became such a, it's like a ubiquitous sound that's just still, George Michael sang the same way often as well. But I think David was a master at that. I just wanted to take you back a bit, Rob, to um, Mamma Mia. Were you actually rehearsing on on the day the uh, Twin Towers were hit? Oh yeah, we were rehearsing that morning. We were rehearsing downtown. Um, we had been in rehearsals at that point for a couple of weeks. We started like middle of August, third yeah, second or third week of August. So we were we were already definitely well into rehearsals, and we were rehearsing down at Fourteenth Street at Union Square. And that morning was just another morning of rehearsals. You know, like for me, I felt I had only moved to New York a month earlier. So I felt like I became a real New Yorker <laughs> September 11th. I mean, of course, t you know, we're hitting the 20th anniversary. But yeah, that morning I was down there and I saw the two, I saw the Twin Towers with my own eyes. And I, for a moment, I came up out of the subway because I was living on the Upper East Side. And I got up in the morning and heard the news and they said, well, a small plane has gone into the World Trade Center and we don't have any other details at this point because... You know, we were, I didn't own a television at the time. And so I didn't see anything. I didn't know anything else about it. So I woke up and I got ready to go down to rehearsal and I was on the subway and I came up and I, the buildings were down there and I saw them and I was like, that is just weird. Like I, I didn't know anything about it, you know, mm -hmm. hadn't, hadn't, wasn't listening to anything. Um, so I got up to the rehearsal room and, and there was a few cast members there. Um, most of the cast was called to a different rehearsal space and they had canceled that rehearsal, but they hadn't canceled ours. So I was up there and the radio was playing and, and we were up there for a few hours and we said, let's, we can't rehearse today. Let's just call it off. So, so yeah, that's like, it, it, it was definitely an event that we all, everybody, you'll never forget it, but I, I don't forget it in a different way because I was here, but we came back to rehearsal the very next day. We called, we called everybody in for rehearsal. We said, well, we'll, we'll meet an hour, a couple hours later. Normally we started at 10 and we said, well, let's come in at 12 or whatever. But we just, we just kind of decided we needed to go on. And we, we didn't really rehearse on that first day back. We just sort of, everybody had to sort of just sit together and some people weren't even there. They'd gone down to try to help down at the site. They didn't, nobody really knew anything. People were going to donate blood. We thought maybe there were survivors. You know, it's hard to remember now at that time that news didn't travel as fast as it does now. I mean, sure, we had the internet in some ways, but it's, it even is, isn't even what it is now that things were still, there was still a lot of misinformation happening. Um but we kind of sat around and said, you know, what is it even, why are we even doing this stupid musical? Like, who cares, you know? Like, and we realized that's why we do it. That that the point, the, the point is going to come in a couple of months. I mean, the show wasn't scheduled to open for another month, 
but we we realized well certainly we're going to be a reason people need to come back out of their houses again and want to come and and experience what life what it means to go on it wasn't until michael moore released his film called fahrenheit 9-11 and it wasn't until i saw that film and it was like so shocking but yeah it's a day you never forget and i think for us with mamma mia it it gave the show a different feeling for new york for people in new york as well because we were the first show to open on broadway after september 11th and it felt like a life affirming thing for people to go oh it's just a silly musical let's come and have fun you know but you were so. bringing happiness to everybody yeah totally totally something to get up for absolutely yeah it felt like a, like it was like a release for people to to acknowledge and how perfect to have that show and that music to be the thing really when you were working on Mamma Mia and all the other productions Miss <clears throat> mentioned what was the most challenging uh, <clears throat> piece of work that you had to learn well, there are challenges in all of them. I mean, really, there's bits and pieces of each each thing I've worked on, and and some of them have to do with with the challenges of learning the music. Like sometimes, as a piano player, there's very challenging. Like Miss Saigon was a really challenging show to play. Beauty and the Beast was too, in terms of the challenge of playing the piano parts that were used in the film. There was a lot of it was almost like like playing a film score, and it was really fun. I mean, it was fun, but. Definitely a good challenge. Mamma Mia was challenging in its own way because for me as a musician, I had like I, I had never been a music director before. So I had to learn the piano parts were not so hard for me because it was rock and roll. So that was something I knew like the back of my hand. But then learning all the other outside elements of you have to cue the singers and there's bits you have to conduct the orchestra. I mean it was a it was a band, it wasn't really an orchestra. But those kind of elements, you know, that was there was challenges to that. And I feel like I get challenged by everything I do. Really, like my my whole life long, even if I'm playing in a band or if I'm even just playing piano on my own to do a live stream on Facebook or something, there's always something to, to be looking out for. And sometimes it's not as hard as I think it's gonna be. Sometimes it's it's harder than I think it's gonna be, but I feel like I'm always up for the challenge and I try to never really be too afraid of <laughs> doing things. You know, like like even after all these years, I still get nervous doing things, but, but I'm, I, I acknowledge the nervousness and I, I make it work to my advantage only because it makes me try to try to do a good job at things. Like my wife and I will do concerts. We do a benefit concert up. We do some, some, some things and we'll work with other singers and I'll prepare songs to play for people. And I always get nervous doing it because I want to, just because I want to do a good job. And it's fun. And, and like at this point, I acknowledge my nervousness and I acknowledge the fact that I'll be, in, I'll be cranky and I'll be like in a bad mood because I'm like in my back of my mind, I'm like, Oh, I, I don't want to screw up this thing, so I just want to do a good job at it. And that's just the way it goes. And I think I've probably done that my whole life long, from my earliest days of taking piano lessons and going to do a piano recital when I was seven or eight. And my teacher would train me how to bow after playing my, my piece of music, you know. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm nervous, but i got to do it, so i got to do it. What was the different challenge that Bohemian Rhapsody presented you with? teaching Rami Malek how to play the piano. Yeah, well, that was a challenge because I had to pretend that I was a piano teacher and I didn't know how much he had to know. And But when you have to be a teacher, you also don't know how well the student is going to learn. And fortunately, he was a good student because he was really excited. At the point that I was with him, it was just like a month before he began filming. And I had to show him the most basic sort of piano moves and I said to him you're 
you're going to be asked to do this thing and they're going to ask you over and over. So I'm going to be the first person to show you how to do this. And it was some, some little piano moves that Freddie Mercury did when he played Bohemian Rhapsody. And he used to cross his hand over playing the verses. And I said to Rami, this is the thing they're going to for sure need you to do. So I get to be the first person to show you how to do it. So I really was just with him for a couple of days. And, and he stood over me at the piano and he videotaped my hands. And, and then he went to London. And so I didn't really get to work with him again. But it was those first few days of kind of being the... the the first person to introduce him to all these things he was going to have to know going forward. So it was, it was like, I felt like it was, it was an honor for me to, to have any sort of involvement at all, you know, to be able to, to meet him and, and get to tell him how important Freddie Mercury was to me in my life, as far as a musician and as an inspiration, and then say to him, here's, here's some things to watch out for him. And then, then he was off. Because yes, so. you would have known those little mannerisms that Freddie had. And... Oh, I sure did from since when I was 11 years old. I remember that, that first film of Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, I mean, we all remember because that was the days before music videos. But Queen made that fancy video. And I remember the first premiere of it on TV. And I remember running home because they, they said, we're going to be premiering this new film from Queen. And I couldn't believe it. Like, what kind of a film is it going to be? But it was just them, you know. And they, they recreated the cover of the Queen 2 album all together, you know, in black with the smoke and everything and then they showed freddie playing the piano like that and from that moment on i was like well you got to do this thing with your hands i was going to ask you if you feel that you are competitive um not really i don't like well it depends how how you would define competitive like i don't i don't necessarily feel the urge to go out of my way to do things that other people want to do I'm competitive. I could become competitive if if there's an opportunity that I might have a chance for. Like, let's say that's I mean, it's a good question, actually, because I don't think of it as as being competitive as much as I feel like it uh, a chance to do my best to have an opportunity. Is that competitive? I guess maybe it is. <laughs> but but then I don't resent it afterwards. So when I don't get a thing, then I don't care. You know, so so th maybe the idea of competitive is is true because let's say when I auditioned for Honeymoon Suite and the the tour manager called me and said, "Here's a list of 13 songs. Learn like four songs for the audition." But then I thought, "I want to get this. I want to play with this band." So I learned all 13 songs. Is that competitive, or does that just mean I I'm competitive with myself maybe? And then when I got the opportunity to audition for Miss Saigon and they sent me the music to learn, I thought, "Well, I'm going to learn this music and I'm going to do my best." But maybe my best isn't good enough, so I have no idea. But I don't know if that's competitive because then I realize I'm going to do the best that I can do. But if somebody's better, I've, in my mind, I think there's definitely somebody better than me. So I'm going to be as competitive as I can be, but I'm prepared to lose. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's competitive or not. Yeah, that's Maybe it is. Now, is it? Okay. It is. And I'd like to know okay. if your nephew, Nico Dawes, is competitive. <gasps> he must be, right? Holy moly. Yeah. But he's also really good, too. Yeah. Like, you know. Explain to anyone who doesn't know. So my nephew Nico started playing hockey when he was three years old. His dad, his my brother-in-law, was a hockey player as well. I mean, I, apparently in Canada you're supposed to play hockey. You're talking ice hockey. Ice hockey, yep. And apparently it's a Canadian thing, which totally passed me over. Because I never played hockey, never wanted to play hockey. I knew of it, of course. And I, and I did love Bobby Orr, who was a hockey player in the early 70s. But my nephew played since he was three years old. 
and he got really good and he got he got drafted to a couple of really good teams and he ended up getting to play for Canada representing Canada with the World Juniors in Christmas of 2019 and they won a gold medal for Canada which was amazing and this past fall he got drafted by the New Jersey Devils as an NHL team and they just actually signed his contract about a week and a half ago so he was playing in Germany for for a few months and now he's going to be part of an NHL team, which is amazing. So, yeah, he, I think he must be, com- it must be competitive in the sports world. But I guess you get to show it off in a different way because you're actually physically doing a thing, right? It's not, it's not like playing music. But, yeah, I, I really feel, uh, I feel a, a kindred spirit in him in that way that it's something that he's loved his whole life long, that he is so devoted to, that he's, he got to be so good at. But it's also because he's worked very hard at it, too. So... Oh, well done him. That's brilliant. I know, it's amazing. Yeah, totally. Are there any songs that you have written that you would have liked David to have recorded? Or could you see him taking any of the Broadway roles in any of the musicals that you've worked on? Oh, he should have played Sam in Mamma Mia (laughs) and sung Knowing Me, Knowing You and sung SOS. That would have been amazing. That would be a dream come true, for sure. And and definitely he could I would have loved him to sing anything that I've ever been involved with, you know I think just just the idea would be super cool. But I can't think of a specific song. But oh yeah, to hear hear him sing "Knowing Me, Knowing You" would have been amazing. Well, you would have to listen to one of the Mamma Mia versions because because then it's it's transposed into a man's key, and it was really when sung by a good voice, it was fantastic. Just a really good rock song for a guy to sing. Where do you rate David's voice in the history of? Not just American music, but global music. Where do I rate his voice? Well, he's in my top singers for sure. I mean, I mean, as a pop singer, I think he's definitely in my top. Do I have to even make a twenty? He might be in my top ten even. There's, I mean, and it's a very, um, it's a, it's a specific sound. I mean, I mean, really, it's a subjective thing for everybody who loves to listen to voices, right? But I think there's something in his voice that I've loved listening to my whole life long. And I, and I think he's up there with, with guys like Elton John and Freddie Mercury and the best rock singers who, you know, had careers as creators and, and as vocalists and as composers and as performers. And, and David was really lucky to be around at a time where he was involved in something with composers and people who gave him such fantastic music that he was able to interpret and make his own. And it's, it's it's like a dream you know i mean for for us to be able to hear him in that way it's there's nothing like it you told me and you wrote in in cherish that you tried to understand why you were so sad when he died i think it's that recognition of of something that has been with you your whole life long it's like it it is sort of like losing a family member who you don't know it's a very it is i don't think i've quite understood it yet and i'm i'm still i still try to understand things like that because i felt the same way when freddie mercury died he was probably the first person who passed away who i felt this weird sadness for where i thought well i don't even know him but it's because of the influence that they have on our lives and it comes back to that thing of of paying attention to memories in your life and time traveling back into your life to listen to music and remember how you felt being in the presence of that sound and that that music right so for a guy like david knowing he was with us on the earth and then he's not there anymore it's the weirdest thing right and somebody 
there's a there's a, a writer a music writer who i've read once said the same thing about paul mccartney we are so lucky that a guy like paul mccartney is still with us on earth i would say the same thing about a guy like elton john because i feel like one day they're going to be gone and it's going to be like they were never here and it's a weird thing to think about that but they're still here at this moment but i think of david cassidy in that way that he left something for us and we were there at the same time and we got to enjoy this it was like a communion you know that we shared this this thing in our lives and he's left but he's not he's not really left he's with us because we see pictures we hear him we can see him and it's a weird acknowledgement that we all feel when when a life is gone and it, it has to do with losing family members with losing friends and and i think somebody like david cassidy it's it's a reminder that it's something that we all experience and but it's shared right it's not just your family it's not your specific it's not a friend of yours it's not your family it's like the whole world like oh my god we've all lost this person and it's a weird focus that happens to us all right brings us together it unites us yeah and it's a beautiful you it's a beautiful sad thing at the same time because it's a reality that we all have to face and i think that's a it's a lesson that we all continue to learn as we live our lives that death is real and <clears throat> maybe that's the beauty of the life that we live that at some point it's taken away and it's happening to other people it's going to happen to us like it's weird that we don't consider it for ourselves in that same way maybe we don't want to think about it but it's true like like it's good to consider it sometimes it's a weird thing but it's good to to like roll it over in our heads once in a while but maybe having celebrities leave us is a reminder that it's a degree of loss in our lives that's very important to us because david has meaning for us in our lives and it's as important as everybody else in our lives as as a family member really I think you've summed it up beautifully, Rob. That will echo with everyone. Good. Yeah. I feel like it, it's an echo that that is it lives within us and but it it is truly something that we don't all speak about enough because it's a hard subject. You know, death is a is a weird thing that that gets brushed under or gets acknowledged, but it's sad and and we we deal with it in our own ways. But it can be a beautiful thing at the same time because we realize what remains is something fantastic as well. Yeah. And and the goal in our lives is to take in as much love and as much life as we can and then leave it with somebody else. And what do you consider David's best work? <gasps> is it his solo work or is it the work that he was a part of when he was still with the Partridge family? I think it's a little bit of both. I think I think that it's him. It's him as a personality, first of all. I think I think what he leaves behind is him first, and then you want to see the Partridge Family. You want to listen to the albums, and then you want to get into his solo work. I mean, so I I, I answer the question badly because I think it's just I think it's just everything. I really I would say though the Partridge Family itself leaves a mark on anybody who sees it because even for a kid today to just watch the show. It's a fantastic it's a fantastic experience because you get the music you get the personality and it can lead you to want to know more about him and then there's so much more to discover really rob i've enjoyed this evening immensely <gasps> me too and i've loved listening to every episode of your podcast too and i feel like i was so excited for this because i knew there'd be something special happening so yeah. it's great but we all but then we owe all a, a debt of gratitude to you as well because you have started this thing that's kept it going as well that will continue on absolutely that's that's a huge part of it all 
the book it's so i mean the book is so beautiful in that way so you know you deserve to be a you deserve to be a part of this legacy now for sure thank you louise and i'll see you online okay all right have a good night thanks bye-bye whatever your preferred podcast listening platform you can follow us by clicking follow or subscribe for free so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released rate and review it's always lovely to hear from you share it all on social media and remember there are more than 20 episodes to listen to if you've yet to catch them and i'll see you next time